I'm going to begin a sermon series called Empty to Overflowing. And today, we're going to talk about what's up in buying a field. And we're going to center it on that story about Jeremiah, the great prophet, from the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah, where he talks about an action of hope. Now, I want to say just a word in kind of setting this up for us. Jeremiah was called to ministry when he was very young. And he became a prophet with a loud voice of, of, um, of, of prophecy that, that many heard and a lot of folks didn't like. In fact, for 12 years he'd been prophesying about the destruction of Judah. And the king had heard him for those years talking about how Judah was going to fail. And finally the king had had enough, so he threw Jeremiah into prison. That'll shut him up. Well, it didn't. You know, you know, and in prison, he watched what he had prophesied. He watched the destruction of Judah. He watched as the armies of the Judeans uh, were being slaughtered and left on the battlefield unburied. And how others were experiencing famine and pestilence. And, and the, 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 the kingdom was falling. And, and, and everything that Jeremiah had said from the Lord was happening. And then the Lord said something else to Jeremiah. He said, well, Jeremiah, it's time to invest in the land. I want you to buy a field. Can you imagine? When everything was going to hell in a handbasket for sure, when the country was completely being annihilated, when, when your, your friends and your neighbors are getting slaughtered, and, and then all of a sudden the, the Judeans were taken into captivity and, and the chief among them were taken into exile. And in the midst of this despair, God led Jeremiah to buy a field. His cousin was selling the field. And his cousin came to him. His cousin's name was Hanamel. And, and Hanamel was probably ready to sell, don't you think? And he said, you know, you're in this family line. And you're next in line. And you can buy this property for a pretty good price right now. And Jeremiah shocked his cousin Hanamel when he said, I'll take it. And the statement that that made to the Judeans who had been hearing Jeremiah for so many years talk about their destruction, all of a sudden is investing as God has instructed him in the land. Now that's probably enough for us to go ahead and read the text. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hamalel, son of your uncle, Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance to, with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin. For the right possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. You know, some people are a little slow, aren't they? I mean, he'd heard God say, buy the field. And then here comes cousin Hamalel. And, and, and so Jeremiah said, hey, this really must be from the Lord. If it's all happening, 
just like the Lord said it would happen. So Jeremiah said, I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. And then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Nerah, son of Mashiach, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase. And in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, in their presence, I charged Baruch, saying, in their presence, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long, long, long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, I want us to look at this first personally today. I want to ask you, have you ever been in a dark place? In a place that just didn't seem like would ever change. It's a place that looks absolutely like a dead end. It's a place that feels particularly hopeless. I read a story this week that really did touch me. It was about a woman named Pamela and her pastor tells the story. His name was, is Thomas Rogers. He said Pamela was a young member of his church. She was in her mid-30s and she was an accountant, a CPA. And she had a promising business. And then one day she gets word after going to the doctor related to her sight that she was actually losing her sight. That she had this, um, this disease that would take her sight completely away in a number of months. Maybe a couple of years. She'd be totally blind. Can you imagine hearing that word? They put her on special diets. They did special treatments. But nothing, nothing worked. And slowly she was losing her sight. It was getting Worse and worse, day by day. And then an eye specialist, surgeon, came to her and said, you know, we do have an option. It's not a great option. But it is an option that if the surgery works, your sight will be, um, will be retained at some level. You're not going to see like you did before, but we'll stop the progression of the disease and you'll at least have some sight, probably for the rest of your life. But if it doesn't work, you're going to go blind immediately. This disease will not just be a progressive disease, but you will immediately be blind. She opted for the surgery. And after the surgery, she was in complete darkness, totally blind, 
It didn't work. And she'd never see again. Her pastor came in to visit her. Right after the surgery, right after she'd gotten that word. And he he said to her, I'm so sorry. A lot of us have been praying for you. Is there anything I can do for you? And she said, Pastor, there is. She said, could you get me a candle? I need a candle. Could you bring a candle to my room? He said, sure, I can do that. Why don't we visit a while? She said, no, Pastor, I need a candle now. If you want to do something for me, you'll go get me a candle. It was 15 minutes back to the church, but he drove back to the church. He got a candle, drove back to the hospital. He went into her room. He approached her bed and said, I have the candle. Would you like me to light the candle? And she said, no, I don't need you to light the candle. Just bring me the candle. And so he carefully placed that candle in her hand. And she held that candle and she said to her pastor, During the last months I have often thought of myself as a candle about to go out. I thought that everything... I am is tied up in being able to see. I expected that when blackness came, then there would be nothingness. And now I'm blind. It's dark. She held the candle even tighter. And she said, but this candle's still here. And, and, and she said... And I'm still here. And and God is still here. And God is going to go with me for the rest of my journey. And though I can't see, my life is not going to be determined by my blindness. Rather, by my candleness, I'm still here. See, Pamela experienced the candle in a different way than we do. I mean, we think about a candle, don't we? And we think about lighting the candle as a symbol of hope. And we think about a candle, you know, lit really does mean a lot to us. We've got some candles here that aren't lit today. but And she'd reached another point. She had realized that flames come and go. That we go through life circumstances and sometimes the flames up, sometimes the flames down. But for her, the candle proper was the symbol of hope. Because regardless of whether there was flame or not, she came to realize that hope is not grounded in what happens to us. Hope is grounded in who we are and whose we are. And therefore, when we accept that kind of understanding, that candleness, if you will, then we can face anything that life has to offer us because we're with the one who stands beside us no matter what. You know, each of us have our own terrible times and circumstances. Each of us have had those dark moments. Some of us may be in the midst of one right now. Hear what Pamela's saying. Your hope is not in if things get better, if they, if they, if they, if they change. Your, your hope is first grounded in who you are and whose you are. First. 
And then we're able to face the circumstances as they come. Pamela bought a field. Well, really, she bought a candle. She didn't even have to buy it. Her preacher gave it to her. But it became a symbol of hope for her. I want to talk to you just a minute about General Conference. St. Louis. Have you heard about St. Louis? Did y'all know we met in St. Louis a few days ago? We United Methodist type people from all over the world? Sort of. Sort of. It's been in the newspaper. It's been on the television. It's been on social media. It's been discussed. And let me tell you something. Our brand is damaged. Because to those who don't know us. They see us as narrow. And exclusive. And we're sad that that's the message. I've been a United Methodist for as long as there's been a United Methodist Church. That would be since 1968. I was a Methodist before that. Before we united in 1968. I love the United Methodist Church because of what the United Methodist Church stands for. And that is that we are not a people of one mind. We are a diverse people. It's better that way. Otherwise we're just all people who think alike and it's just like we're in an echo chamber. I like the fact that we're global and we're diverse. and We we come together around a common mission at our best making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. But I need to explain to you so that you know what happened. Now, our global sisters and brothers, in respect to their countries, with their versions of their own book of discipline that fits their cultural experience, the larger church does not interfere in their determining their book of discipline. Based on their cultural experiences. And yet when it comes to our general conference that involves uh, all of our churches. And the United States churches are under that particular book of discipline. Everybody votes. Everybody. And so if the delegates were the only ones to have voted. The delegates from the United States. The one church plan that recognized that we were a church from traditional to centrist to progressives and that we could stay together under this big tent and live into the issues um, of the day and particularly how we love LGBTQ persons and how we include them. It would have passed by two-thirds, some say as much as 75% if it were only the U.S. voting. That's not the way we do things. And so 864 people voted. And if 23 people had switched their vote, the traditional plan would not have passed, which was the other plan. And the traditional plan being passed, it led us to a different place. And I want that to go on the screens. I want us to understand. And I want to say before we put it up on the screens that I'm sorry that this is hard to hear. It's hard for me to speak it. But we need to know what the traditional plan gave us. Are y'all going to be able to put that up? Here it is. An expanded definition of self-avowed homosexuals to include persons living in same-sex marriage or union 
or who publicly proclaim themselves to be practicing homosexuals. Explicitly prohibits bishops from consecrating bishops, ordaining or commissioning clergy, and who are self-avowed practicing homosexual people. It requires all persons who are who are nominated to serve on the annual conference board of ordained ministry, that would be KEC and myself, we're on our conference boards of ordained ministry, that we certify, that we put in writing, that we will uphold and enforce the book of discipline standards for ordained clergy. And it establishes a minimum penalty for clergy convicted of performing a same-sex wedding of one year suspension without pay for the first offense and the loss of credentials for the second offense. It explicitly prohibits district committees and conference boards of ministry from recommending a candidate for ministry who does not meet the standards or the orders that the bishops to declare any such unqualified candidate out of order And it prohibits a bishop from arbitrarily dismissing a complaint against another clergy person. Bishops have to be the judge. And if the bishops won't judge, they have a first offense too. And they have a second offense where they lose their credentials. I hate what happened. And you know, the thing about it is, I think the persons who pushed for this the most also see the damage that it's done. We have no United Methodist Army. Did y'all know that? We don't have a United Methodist Police Force. Did y'all know that? There's no way, no way to enforce what we voted on. Now, it will probably be thrown out by our Supreme Court, we call the Judicial Council, because it is unconstitutional. But just that it has made it to the papers and made it to a vote saddens me. What we were pushing for was that we'd get rid of this divisive language and that we would recognize that we are a diverse people globally and even in the United States. And what we got was the worst case scenario. You know, our book of discipline says those few words that we've been debating for 47 years that the United Methodist Church does not condone the practice of homosexuality and considers the practice incompatible with Christian teaching. And a lot of us hadn't believed that for a long time. A long time. But we also say this. This might come up on the screens. I don't know. We affirm That all persons of individuals of sacred worth created in the image of God. And that we as United Methodists must see persons as in need of ministry. All persons. And then we say. We affirm that God's grace is available to all. We will seek to live together in Christian community. Welcoming, forgiving and loving one another. As Christ has loved and accepted us. We implore families and churches 
not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends. We commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons. Do you kind of hear a double standard here? Okay, I'm going to share a quote with you, and I'm doing it on my phone, which is dangerous. A man named James Merritt wrote an article in the Washington Post that basically was entitled, Methodists Could Learn Something from Southern Baptists. Historic Conservative Takeover. That's the title of the article. And then he said this. Listen to this. In times of deep cultural division, faith communities face a choice. Either they will find creative ways to live with the tensions that come with diversity and disagreement, Or they will divide into echo chambers in which everyone more or less thinks the same way. Too often they choose the latter. Opting for a revolution leading only to irrelevance. Friends, when the brand is damaged... And when we become irrelevant because of our stance, there has to be change. And the best way to work for change is to work from within. And to keep doing what we're doing. Because what we're doing is smiled on by God. You know, somebody asked me in St. Louis... Gosh, what are you going to do this Sunday? That would have been last Sunday. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to Lover's Lane. And we're going to throw this big old party. Celebrating 75 years next Sunday. And and we're going to have all of our diversity on show. Because this is who we are. We're, We're going to throw a big party next week. And then... We're going to have a $13 million capital campaign. He looked at me and he said, you're crazy. (laughs) But what we're doing is blooming biblical. In the worst of times, you buy a field. You move forward. You hold your candle. You say, this does not divide, define us. The actions of the United Methodist Church in St. Louis, it does not, does not define us. We know who we are. We know whose we are. We know that we've been following a vision for this church to be one diverse community, passionately engaging the Bible, uplifting Jesus in worship and loving service, and challenging in love that which divides. And that is our preferred future.
friends, will you trust me as your pastor? Will, will you trust our staff and our lay leadership because we're going to be joined in these actions? We don't know what I'm going to say yet. Doesn't matter. Carl, I love you. We're not going to blot out United Methodist. We're not going to put up a rainbow flag. But I understand why churches are doing that. And I support them. But it's not who we are. We have to be who we are. And who we are is that we just love each other. And I'm going to sign an article that's going to go in the newspaper. Dallas Morning News next Sunday. With a whole lot of other people. That's going to be an apology. From United Methodists about what we did at General Conference. That we feel like gave the wrong message. About who we are. Will you trust me? And we are going to continue what I said we were going to do. We're going to pray and we're going to discern. We're not going to react. Because I feel like God is going to show us a field to buy. And we'll know it when God shows it. Now the, the, the waiting that we're going to be about is not some sort of docile waiting. It's going to be a very active waiting. We're going to be waiting with other people like minds. But God's going to show us a field to buy. You know, what, what we're saying today about what we experience personally when we experience hopelessness and what we experience as a denomination when we're in our dark times, it's that in those dark times, God speaks to us just like he spoke to Jeremiah. And we need to hear the way the biblical narrative ends. The people eventually go back from exile. They go back to Judah. And eventually there are homes and vineyards and, and land sold again. But Jeremiah died. He never saw it. Did he die sad? I doubt it. Because he bought a field. He knew he wouldn't be defined as to whether they were kept in exile or whether they would be freed to come home because God had promised him something. He knew who he was. And he knew that God was in charge of the future. He didn't have to worry about things coming out all right. He bought a field. Friends, that's what we're going to do. We're turning up the volume. I want you to invite every friend who will darken the door of a United Methodist Church right now to come test the love. I want you to especially invite your friends and family members who are gay or lesbian to test the love.
Because we are made better when we are not an echo chamber. And we hadn't been an echo chamber for a long time. We're a sacred harmony. And God teaches us in the midst of that harmony. How to love like Jesus loved. I'm not going to say I'm not going to get in trouble. Jeremiah was thrown in prison. The Methodist cops may come to get me and throw me in prison. But we are going to be who we are. We are going to buy a field. We are going to hold a candle. And we're going to grow. And we're going to flourish. And we're going to be all that God would have us be. Even if that means going through some troubled waters. Because we have a promise. And people will buy homes again. They'll buy vineyards again. It's coming. It's coming. It's time to buy the field. Amen. Amen.